0: Hi, this is Steve. Filmmaking can be an incredibly complicated undertaking with hundreds or even thousands of moving parts to coordinate. Film productions have had to build roads, invent new technologies, feed, transport, and house thousands of crew members, and sometimes even push the boundaries of safety with death-defying stunt work. It takes tremendous talent, discipline, and hard work to manage that kind of complexity. But sometimes the most challenging kind of filmmaking isn't adding complexity, but rather stripping it away. No spectacle to hide behind. No special effects or mind-boggling action sequences. Nothing left to work with but the bare essentials, the words, the actors, and the camera to film them. Twelve Angry Men is just such a movie. A story that plays out in one room and in real time, flawlessly captured by the first-time director Sidney Lumet, 12 Angry Men is a masterclass in acting with Henry Fonda and one of the greatest ensembles in the history of cinema. Lumet brings us in close as 12 jurors wrestle with each other, their preconceptions, and even the darkness within their own souls. It's a remarkable film, and one of John's all-time favorites. It's available for rental on iTunes and Amazon, and there is a fantastic Blu-ray from Criterion Collection. So that's the deceptively simple 12 Angry Men, this Friday on The Cinephiles.
1: Excitable! You bet I'm But We're trying to put a guilty man in the chair where he belongs! Someone <laughs> stops telling us fairy tales and we're listening! What made you change your vote? He
2: didn't change his vote. I did. <laughs>
0: Welcome once again to the Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film that explores themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California.
3: Hello, everyone. My name is John Roga. I'm a voiceover artist and host and co-host of numerous shows uh, uh, here in Los Angeles on the Collider Network, and pretty soon... On The Geek and Sentry Network. So we'll really? Yes, we shall see. Oh, well, maybe we we'll have exciting news to talk
0: about in the Files. There are negotiations happening. Ah, well, be tough. <laughs> Thank you. Be Thank tough you. on your negotiations. We shall see. So, uh, normally, when we talk about our films, the first thing I do is ask you what your experience is, but I think I'm going to start. Okay, sure. Because I think you're going to have more to say. So, the film we're going to talk about today is 12 Angry Men. <sighs> it's 19, wait, 50. 1959. 1959, mm-hmm. starring Henry Fonda. It's Sidney Lumet's first film. And I'll tell you Here's my experience The first time I saw this film I have mm-hmm. no memory Of when the first time I saw this film was Okay, I think it was in college Sure I loved it when I saw it It's right up my alley Because it's courtroom drama We already talked about That I like that It's dialogue It's smart It's uh, it's just great acting mm-hmm. and I remember loving it, but I don't remember my first experience. So how
3: about wow. you? I would say that I I think I'm a little bit in your boat. I remember seeing it certainly in high school at some point. And I don't know if it was on TV or on PBS. And I was transfixed and became a massive fan of the film uh, ever since because of it, when you're a young kid and you're still growing up as to be a young adult, young man. To see all these different types of men enclosed in a space for an hour and 36 minutes it really gives you a crash course on uh, the personalities uh, of men
0: well and this is a real character yeah. study I mean, more, you know, you can sit there and examine each of these fully realized people yeah. in a single space. I mean, I can't think of any movie
3: that it more gives you that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an exciting film uh, for so many different reasons, even though they never leave the room. So is there anything else you might have done? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, uh, what Steve is leading to, I think, is that uh, I was so inspired by this film that when I got out of the military in 1998, I went back to college at Florida State University. I'd gotten my A degree at night, and I went to study... Uh, acting and directing. And the first time I was allowed to direct a play, I did Glengarry Glenn Ross, which was nice. But um, when I decided that I wanted to make money to come to LA, I started a production company in Tallahassee called Rising Storm Productions, and I directed... The first play I wanted to direct was 12 Angry Men, and uh, there is there was such a resonance in the play that I thought I could modernize it, and I directed it, and I had African Americans in the cast, I had women in the cast, I adjusted some words, and I got permission to call it 12 Angry Men instead of 12 Angry Jurors, which is the updated version right. that uh, uh, Samuel French or whoever that owns the rights with Reg- Reginald Rose uh, uh, gives you... Uh, the the permission to use is the title for a play, which is just not as good a title. It really isn't. Even okay. and neither and, and no offense, neither is Twelve Angry Men. This, for my mind, in my mind, because I grew up with Twelve Angry Men. In my mind, that's the one that I resonate there, with the most. There, there, there's just certain words work.
0: Twelve Angry mm-hmm. Men sounds great. Twelve Angry Jurors. Doesn't sound as, great. not so much. Yeah, I agree. It just doesn't sound as great. Yeah. So that, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I knew you had done Glengarry Glenn, Ross. Yeah. And this one. I hadn't thought,
3: those are two manly, talky plays. Yeah. Those are things that appealed to me when I was directing. And I did Titus Andronicus. Whoa. So there we go. That's so, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but this, 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 this film. You didn't and think th- of doing like noises off, like <laughs> comedy, <laughs> flea in your ear, or something. I suppose if I'd kept directing, I would have found myself to those things. As people know, I'm kind of a jovial guy. I would have found those, my way to those things. But you did the heavy. Yeah. Into it but but I like it to do the heavy stuff to make it accessible, and to make it uh, something that people want to explore. And there's so much in this film that is so uh, exciting to explore, so fun to explore, so moving to explore, and still resonant in 2016.
0: Well, and, and this is something which I think is true of Twelve Angry Men. Yeah. I think it's true of Glenn, Glenn Glenn Ross. Yeah, it is not true of Titus Andronicus. No, but is that. They are fun mm-hmm. in their way. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with some stuff, but because partially because of the rhythm of the great dialogue, yeah. partially because of the great characters, yeah. they're fun. And this movie, as you said, it's like an hour and a half. Hour and a half, yeah. 96 and it days. goes fast. Yeah. It is completely engaging beginning to end. So yeah. let's, let's back up and talk okay. a little bit about the film. This film has a really unique origin story, which is that this film came from television. That's happened a few times, but I can't think of any example where it's as profoundly happened as well as this Mm -hmm. and to know about this film you need to know a little bit about live tv Mm -hmm. so in the mid 50s early to mid 50s there was live television happening in new york and they would do obviously sitcoms which were kind of used to being live there was live variety shows which the closest thing we have today is saturday night live yeah but there were a lot of them: Milton Berle and Sid Caesar and uh Ernie Kovacs and those kinds Mm -hmm. of shows but they also did live dramas which is something we every once in a while you see them, like E.R. did a live drama and uh, some other shows, which I've drawn a blank on. But every once in a while they'll do them. It's extremely difficult, and they did them every single night of the week. And they had not only great writers, like Patty Chayefsky and Rod Serling being two of them, and the third one, the third probably top writer at that time, is Reginald, Reginald Rose Reginald yeah. Rose, who yeah. wrote this uh, one and then they also they needed a constant stream of actors and the actors they're drawing on are the theater actors because they're the ones who are capable of doing a beginning to end show. You got to have theater actors every night, every yeah. single night. Yeah. And so they brought in these theater actors and that is the generation of the method actors. Mm-hmm. That is when those those people that we know like Marlon Brando and James Dean mm-hmm. started coming along, but it's also the cast we see in this Yeah, you know, also people like Gene Hackman and Robert Duvall and Dustin Hoffman. And these these are the those young generation of actors who are starting in live television. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they do this play. It's 1954. Did you do you know who directed it? Because I didn't know, I just found No, out. I did not. Franklin Schaffner okay. directed, and Franklin Schaffner, we have already talked about, oh, director of *Planet of the Apes*. Right. And Patton directed the oh, original funny. 12 Angry Men* in 1954. Right. And uh, it was on—I forget the—I forget which uh, series it's on. Probably on CBS. Probably Play, Playhouse West it's or something like that. What, or whatever, yeah. I,
3: I looked it up. Yeah. And now I can't. American Playhouse. Or yeah, something it's one like, of those. Yeah. There
0: were a whole bunch of these. There were. And Henry Fonda sees the play, sees the show, mm-hmm. and goes, "I want to do this
3: as a movie." And he's the person who gets the ball rolling. This this film, this play, when it bites the right person, can motivate that person to put it on because everyone can find uh, some tr- universal truth in it through their own prism when they put it up. And you see it here with Sidney Lumet's version as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And
0: what's interesting to me about Fonda is, like, we think of Stars want to be stars. Yeah. In other words, stars are interested in their own ego. They want to be And what does Henry Fonda choose to do? An ensemble piece. Yes.
3: And he, Heston would never do an ensemble piece? No.
0: <laughs> Not at that no. time. And 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 and, <laughs> and it's sure Henry Fonda is the lead mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. ensemble. Mm-hmm. But it's still an ensemble piece. yeah. And so he says he wants to do it, and and they bring in Sidney Lumet. And Sidney Lumet, this is his first film, and he was a TV director. Mm -hmm. He's one of the guys who had been doing these TV shows. And he has an interesting origin. So his father was an actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, His father was a famous actor and playwright in the Yiddish theater in New York. And for those of you who don't know, there was a huge Yiddish Jewish population from Germany and Eastern Europe living in New York. And they had a whole... Uh, Yiddish community Mm -hmm. that had Yiddish newspapers, Yiddish books, Yiddish theater, Yiddish music, all of this that was self-contained. And so Lamet grew up acting in the Yiddish theater from the age of four years old and then moved to Broadway at 11. So he's a Broadway actor at Mm -hmm. 11, was in 14 plays. He's with huge, huge uh, actors on and big, huge Broadway shows. So by the time he's 18, he's a pro. Yeah. And the thing he says that's just interesting about acting with is what it gave him was it gave him tremendous respect for craft and zero awe. Mm. And I think
3: that's, I like that idea a lot. Absolutely. once you remove the inability to speak to an actor, because you're intimidated by that actor, right. no matter the star status, you, then you, you get a stronger, you get a stronger directorial performance because they're, they have a vision and the, and the actors will fall in line for the most of the time.
0: That's yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it ceases to be magical. Yeah. Like when you have awe and you look at the great actor, you go, oh, how do they do that? Right. But when you see, when day to day, you see them get up for their work, and particularly on Broadway, where you have to do six shows a week, mm-hmm. and sometimes you're sick, and sometimes you're hungover, and yeah. sometimes you don't feel like doing the show, and you watch that actor Put it together mm-hmm. and get out and give the show. You learn about the craft. Well, and sometimes it's eight
3: to ten shows a week. If
0: you do right. matinees, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And and I've done. I, I, have you ever done that? I did a, a like matinee six show a week run for a couple of months yeah. as an actor. It's brutal. It's brutal, especially if you're in a drama. Yeah, massively. brutal. And I had small parts. I never had the big parts, <laughs> but it was still particularly the second show on the matinee yeah. day. You're literally off stage gossiping about where you're going to go out drinking tonight. Then walk on. Yeah. Have the scene, walk off, you're back right in the middle of the conversation. Exactly. And that doesn't mean you're not doing a good job. No, Yeah, so that's his origin. And at the same time, he became part of the group theater. Mm-hmm. And the group theater, for those of you who don't know, this is where Ellie Kazan and this is where the method came mm-hmm. to the U.S. Like a Stanislavski, you think? I yeah, so the Stanislavski yeah. method yeah. comes to the U.S. in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And one of the first big, important theaters that did it uh, was the group theater. Um, it's Waiting for Lefty. Who's the author of Waiting for Lefty. Oh,
3: isn't that... Uh, oh, yes. Jacevsky? Oh, yeah. oh, Clifford Odets. Clifford Odets, right. So uh,
0: he, he, he's this great playwright in the mm-hmm. theater. Um, Strasberg is in the group theater. Yeah, of course he all is. these All these guys who become the formation of The Method are in mm-hmm. this theater, and that's where Lumet is. Yeah. And, he did, and he's right at the beginning of when the actor's studios formed, yeah. and he didn't like it and got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just thought it was too... He said they were too much in one system, which yeah. is this method, which you see all these actors come out of. Right. And he said, yeah, that's great, but we should learn how to sword fight and use our speech, and they should learn what... Uh, Grotowski and Meyerhold, and he wanted to do all this stuff and they said no this is what we're doing they kick him out he forms his own theater mm-hmm. and then he ends up uh, starting to, because there was this need for people who understood actors and the theater yeah. to come to television and this is the early 50s yeah. and he comes and he starts to be an assistant director and his boss the director is Yul Brynner Wow. Yep, who we just talked about recently yes. in Magnificent Seven. Mm-hmm. Yul Brenner was a regular TV director, and do you know why Yul Brenner left directing television? To be an actor. because he got cast in The King and I. There you go. And he was debating like should I do this dumb show or should I or should I stick to my regular And you mean the stage version. You mean the stage version. Yes. Yes. He was cast in the stage. Oscars, Mm -hmm. uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein wanted him to be the lead Mm -hmm. and he's debating and finally he decides to go and who gets to take over his gig is Sidney Lumet. Wow. So Sidney Lumet then uh, now it's seven or eight years after that and Mm -hmm. he's going to direct his first film and he gets handed this very small budget uh, beefed up Uh, teleplay to make Into 12 Angry Men.
3: Yeah. And it's such an interesting story because uh, also uh, Fonda comes on as producer and they produce the film together. Right. Uh, They do it in 21 days, a compressed schedule, and Fonda never produces another film again. Yeah. Because for him it was too exhausting to manage all those actors, even when it was shot in one room. Right. If he, I'm sure he said to himself, it's, "If I can't even handle one room, I can't imagine a film where I have to go on multiple locations." You know, so much involved in this in the film that is that comes through because they're all involved. They're all they're all stuck in a room, having to stay in the room until they make a decision.
0: It, it's so it's so difficult filmically, and normally you think like if you watch plays. I mean, this isn't exactly a play. It becomes a play mm-hmm. actually after the movie, but yeah. Um, when you watch a play being made into a movie, the first thing they do is go, how, do we, how are we going to open this up? Yeah. How are we going to get into more locations and have more movement because just filming a stage play is not going to look good? Right. And Lamette, I don't think there's any other choice, goes, We're, you can't open this up. It's yeah. in a room. Yeah. And you look at the choices he makes filmically to make it still exciting. yeah, It's really interesting, particularly when you think about a first-time director.
3: Yeah, I mean the fact that he was able to use uh, wider angle shots at the beginning of the film right. to get to get you feeling like there's an expanse in the room. There's a distance between these characters because they don't really know each other. They've been sitting in a jury room. They've gotten the case presented to them. Then they go into the jury room and they, they start and then as the film progresses, he gets lower and lower in terms of the camera angle to the point where he's using close-ups and real tight shots and from below shots by the end of the film, so you get the sense of tension right. and building drama between Lee J. Cobb and Henry Fonda. And maybe this is—I don't know—I don't mean to steer anything, but maybe this is right time to talk about the casting. I don't know. What do you? What, well, let me, what,
0: let's let's before we get yes. to that,
3: I want to I want to just because you brought it up, is talk yeah. a little bit about lenses. Oh
0: uh, yes. Please. So so just because you know, we want to always drop back and talk a little bit about yes, the filmmaking, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. He uses wide angle lenses at the beginning, and what wide angle lenses do is they have a deep depth of field, which means yeah. they tend to have more stuff in focus, mm-hmm. and they tend to make space look bigger so you're looking at a wide space and so for instance if there was a person standing three feet behind another person and you got a wide angle lens it would look like that person is eight feet behind them yeah when you have a long lens, which means like a telephoto lens on your camera, then what happens is spaces become much smaller and things go out of focus. So that person who's now still standing three feet behind the other person looks like they're right over their shoulder and the rest of the room looks totally out of focus. Yeah. And so what he did, which is just as you described, beginning of the movie, high angle, wide angle lenses. So you see this big expanse. The room looks really big. We go to longer and longer lenses through the course of it, and the camera gets lower and lower, mm-hmm. so it looks claustrophobic. People are right on top of each mm-hmm. other, and now we're into these close-ups. Things are going out of focus, and that is that's disciplined filmmaking. Yeah, um, for a first film, for a first film. Right. And the way, and the one other thing I want to talk about, and I'm I trying to thinking about how to explain this without getting technical, okay, and how to do it with audio because you really need visuals to understand this. Right. Is I want to, there's a basic concept of filmmaking which is the 180 degree rule. Or we call this the line, and what this basically means is that when you're filming things, you're going to break everything up into wide shots and close-ups and over-the-shoulders and all these things. Right. But you always want to create the illusion that people who are looking at each other look like they're looking at each other. Yes, um, and that's harder to do than you would think. And the, the best example I can give you is like imagine you're at a play, and in the play, two people are on the stage talking to each other, and you're in the audience, and one person's on the left, and the other guy's on the right. right. And if you moved way over in the audience to the right side of the audience, you would look up, and the person who was on the right still on the right yeah. person's on the left still on the left you move over to the left same thing but if suddenly you were magically transported onto the stage behind those characters and you open your eyes the two people would have switched sides yeah so when you're filming the, the, you basically talk about the line which is like in a stage where there's a line between the two people and you can only stay on one side of it right if you go to the other side it will no longer appear like they're talking to each other it'd be look like someone's talking to the other person's back Oh, okay. What you want is someone's on the left side of the screen and they're looking towards the right. The other person's on the right side of the screen looking towards the left. Mm-hmm. But if you cross the line, there'll be one person on the left side of the screen looking to the right. And the other person will also be looking to the right and they will not be looking at each other. Right. Even though in the reality of the room, they were looking at each other. Yep. So when you have two people, you have one line to worry about. It's pretty easy. If you have three people, you have three lines Mm -hmm. because you have John is talking to Steve. That's one line. Yeah. If Shirley walks in the room, well, then you have John to Steve, John to Shirley and Steve to Shirley. Right. I made the mistake of my first feature that I made. Mm -hmm. I decided to do one with an ensemble of six people who talk in a room four or five times in the course of the movie. Well, that's a lot of lines. And every time someone moves, the lines change because everyone's eyes shift to a different spot Mm -hmm. and you have new lines. And it gave me a headache. And there were times where we had to stop shooting so me and the DP can sit and go, where's the line? Which way? Should this person be looking to the left or to the right? Makes sense. Lamette's first movie is 12 people... <laughs> All in the room for the whole movie. The right. whole movie he has twelve lines right. to think about. Yeah. And every time someone moves, you have to figure out, okay, now that he's crossed from here to here, is Lee J. Cobb looking to the left of camera or to the right of camera? Right. And it is that is like major headaches. That's and,
3: beyond script consulting. Oh, it's yeah. beyond. Yeah, like it's you're like you're mapping everything out and then making sure people are watching yeah. to make sure like where they looked or when they... It's, it's yeah, a it, lot to keep track yeah, of.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. So, and, and if everything I just said completely confused you, first of all, I'm very sorry about that. And <laughs> second of all, it's much easier if you can see it. I'm sure if you go on YouTube and look for the 180 degree rule or, yeah. or crossing the line, they'll show you examples of it and it'll make
3: sense yeah. to you. Yeah. So,
0: so I just wanted to say that. Now let's get to much more important details,
1: <laughs> which is uh this has, been,
3: this has been the Steve Information Moment brought to you by the Cinephiles. Hey, go the, ahead. I get them, the more you know all right so casting yes the best i mean amazing yeah uh henry fonda lee j cobb e.g marshall jack warden jack klugman so many fantastic ed bagley ed hey, bagley Be- jr's father for those yep. of you who are big christopher guest fans Martin balsam Martin Balsam, who I absolutely love who you 've seen in oh, psycho Spirit. numerous other films through the '60s and '50s well and, and, and if you watch these people,
0: and I think this movie is worth watching for watching the people who aren 't talking absolutely look, look at the background, mm-hmm. look at what else is going on if you watch them, it is a textbook on on American naturalistic acting yeah, this is not Shakespearean acting mm-hmm. this is not some strange eastern European acting this isn 't no drama acting this right. is this is the 1950s naturalism. Yeah. And you watch, they're so those characters
3: are so real and so well-developed and so just like, yeah, that's a real person. Yeah, I've seen this film so many times. I mean, so many times that I watch one juror right. every time I watch the film. Yeah. So I focus on one. So I've seen it at least 12 times because I've focused on one of the jurors every single time I've seen it. So that I can catch those moments. This time around, I focus on Ed Bagley. And it was fascinating oh, wow. to watch his reactions. Because I'm looking for the, the, the uh, acting moment where it's not believable. I'm looking for the acting moment where they're s- overselling the situation. And none of them do it. None of them do it. It's very real. It's very authentic. It's I don't know if it's method or any of that stuff. It's it's very just very authentic and real and and relatable and connectable as the viewer. You never doubt a moment that's happening in this film. Let
0: me let me let me describe the plot just a little. Sure, bit. yeah. Let's because do I think it's going to help us as we talk about Absolutely. the actors. We
3: probably should have done that at the beginning. But so yes, here's
0: <laughs> the the <laughs> yeah. plot is very simple. Yeah, is that we begin at the end of a trial and the judge who is quite bored, which I think is great direction. Absolutely. Is he's bored, you know, in a completely not caring way, says.
2: You've listened to a long and complex case, murder in the first degree. A premeditated murder is the most serious charge tried in our criminal courts. You've listened to the testimony. You've had the law read to you and interpreted as it applies in this case. It's now your duty to sit down and try and separate the facts from the fancy. One man is dead. Another man's life is at stake. If there's a reasonable doubt in your minds as to the guilt of the accused, a reasonable doubt... Then you must bring me a verdict of not guilty. In the event that you find the accused guilty, the bench will not entertain a recommendation for mercy. The death sentence is mandatory in this case. You're faced with a grave responsibility. Thank you, gentlemen.
0: You jurors now have to decide basically whether this guy lives or dies. It's a murder trial. The death penalty is involved. Mm -hmm. They go off to the jury room. There's a little bit of chit chat Mm -hmm. and they take their first vote and 11 people vote guilty. Yeah. And one person, Henry Fonda says not guilty. Yep.
1: Boy, oh boy. There's always one. (laughs) Oh, what are we doing now? I guess we talk. Boy, oh boy. You really think he's innocent? I don't know.
0: But I think this is a person's life, and I think it's important enough that we talk about it. Yes. And then the rest of the movie is just
3: this discussion of this murder case. The film is America. The film is America. That's the thing about the, that I love about the film. It encapsulates America. There are archetypes. There are stereotypes within the film. There are, with these characters, there are things you recognize, but they're all real. And also what I think is fantastic about this film is that the kid is ethnically ambiguous it's not a black kid it's not african but it is a kid who could possibly be latino who could possibly be uh, eastern european he could be armenian even he could be any number of race uh, even italian he could be any number and that's what so was so great about the casting and that kid doesn't say a word he's just yep, a kid you see his face for one shot and it's very reminiscent of sal minio's face to a degree yeah. and so you have that and so that leads you into the feeling of like you as the viewer can decide what race he is. So when you're watching the film, or when you're watching the deliberations that happen, you can decide what race they're deliberating about when they talk about like, oh, these people, and you know, the, the, they're lower class or they're uneducated. Those things that they say, you can confront your own stuff as if you were when you're watching it. And I love that. Well, and, and race plays a huge part
0: yes. in this film, yes. right from the beginning.
1: This kid's been kicked around all of his life. You know, born in a slum, mother dead since he was nine. It's not a very happy beginning. He's a, a wild, angry kid. That's all he's ever been. And you know why? Because he's been hit on the head by somebody once a day, every day. He's had a, he's had a pretty miserable 18 years. I, I just think we owe him a few words, that's all. I don't mind telling you this, mister. We don't owe him a thing. He got a fair trial, didn't he? What do you think that trial caused? He's lucky he got it. Know what I mean? You know it. Now, look, we're all grown-ups in here. You're not going to tell me that we're supposed to believe this kid knowing what he is. Listen, I've lived among them all my life. You can't believe a word they say. You know that. I mean, they're
2: born liars. Only an ignorant man can believe that. Now, listen. Do you think you were born with a monopoly on the truth? I think certain things should be pointed out to this man. Come on, this isn't Sunday. We don't need a sermon. Come on, we have a job to do now. Let's do it.
0: There are times where I've seen this film and gone, Oh, maybe that's a little too on the nose right. for today. Maybe people wouldn't quite mm-hmm. s- expose their racism in such a and now I look around today and I go, hmm, yeah,
3: maybe it's still maybe it still would work that way. I think Because that's... if it was a Muslim person today, yep. you'd get the same thing. Same that you'd have people in that yeah. room saying the yeah. same thing yeah. about them and then having their own words turned back on them as well from their yeah. own experiences. Um and but the movie's more complicated than just mm-hmm. being about race. It's definitely right. about race. Yeah. And so, so the, 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 the crime is the, this kid killed his father. They think they have the evidence to kill, to, that he's... Well, he's been but, accused of he's killing He's been accused of it, yeah, right. He's been accused, and they think that it's a slam dunk case, right? 11 out of the 12 think it's a slam dunk case. The one person dissents, and then right. you start the process of deconstructing the entire case through Henry Fonda's eyes and his desire to get them just to talk about it leads to his almost inadvertent desire to try to change their minds about whether he's guilty or not guilty. And he never overtly is trying to make him not guilty. He just wants to talk about it. I think at every moment, Henry Fonda is waiting for someone to change his mind and no one can come up with the right argument to make Henry Fonda stop or juror number eight, as he's called, stop and say, okay, guilty. So I want to talk about Henry Fonda. Yes, let's. Um, There's a thing Sidney Lumet
0: says about him that I think is 100% true, which is that Henry Fonda can't say something that isn't true. (laughs) When he says something
1: on screen. That's a great way to describe him. Yes. Maybe. Maybe the boy did kill his father. Didn't hear the scream, did run out in a panic, did calm down three hours later and come back to get the knife, risking being caught by the police. Maybe all of those things happened, but maybe they didn't. I think there's enough doubt that we can wonder whether he was there at all during the time the killing took place. If you look
0: at his career, you look at he's Tom Joad in Grapes of Wrath. Yes. He's Abraham Lincoln. When Henry Fonda says something, that's the truth. Yep. Um. Or, uh, the truth is he sees it at least. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a really, being able to say what you're saying- mm-hmm. That's a different, difficult skill for an actor. Oh,
3: it is, and the thing is, the the it's almost like Tom Hanks. I mean, he is. He, yeah. You can make the correlation from Henry Fonda to Tom Hanks, and not that Henry Fonda yeah. was any kind of goofy comedies, but you can make that connection because he kind of assumed the mantle of the uh Amer- the everyday man. The everyday yeah, man, I always put I would man. always put Tom Hanks with Jimmy Stewart. Um, Ooh, that's great. Okay, so who would be Fonda's? Let's see I pl- played this
0: game before. So I I, I, I put uh, Harrison Ford was Humphrey Bogart. I put Ooh, I could see that. Okay. Uh, but but this is not the game we're this playing. This is not the right game. Right. I'm not sure who the Henry Fonda is. It's oh, a... oh, made, mm-hmm. Oh, well Henry Fonda uh Kevin Costner is best.
3: Okay, maybe. Maybe I all can't right. 100% go with all right. It, we will okay. continue. We will continue this yeah. game. Yeah off mic <laughs> either way I just think what's great about him is is what he, what you're saying bringing it up is absolutely correct when you watch Henry Fonda in any groups of wrath uh, on Golden Pawn even up oh, to yeah. on Golden absolutely. Pawn uh, The man does not have an inauthentic moment including once upon a time in the in the West. Oh, yeah That's why and, he's terrified right, exactly because he's so believable. Yeah, because he's just I'm just saying what I'm saying Yeah, and this is it. Yeah,
0: and so when he says I don't know. Yeah. You don't get the sense that it's manipulative. right? You get the sense that he's saying, I don't know, which is really important because the standard for convicting someone of crime is beyond a reasonable doubt. right? And that's what this movie is about. This movie is about, do you have doubt? And at the beginning of the film, they all say, "They all say, mm-hmm. yeah, he's guilty, 100%. Yeah. And, but when you watch, and I love this opening moment, and I've thought about this a lot when watching this movie mm-hmm. this time, is the reasons that they're doing what they're doing yeah. Is often not because I think this guy's guilty. What you see in that opening vote is you see them all looking at each other. Yes. And you see them all. Being within a society and worrying about how are other people voting, mm-hmm. how are other people feeling, how will I be perceived in this thing, and that's why
3: they're voting the way they're,
0: and they all want to get out of there, yeah. and they all want, and they're just like, well, if everyone else thinks he's guilty, he must be guilty, and that's why they do it,
3: right? And that's what's so interesting when you watch it as as Henry Fonda starts to turn each of them throughout the film, you see the ones that go first, right, then the harder ones, and yeah. that's what's so interesting because you're right, that whole thing about peer pressure is there, and that happens. Studies have been proven oh yeah all over the like if someone starts running 10 other people start running with them Absolutely. just because they think there must be a reason that person is running. And so they've done multiple t- tests over the years to test human reaction and the f- and especially male reaction to peer pressure around other males. This feeling of needing to be part of the group, right? It is very intrinsic and primal in our makeup as human beings and yeah, as men. We want to fit in. We want to do what we're supposed
0: to do. Exactly. There's, we there's, want to be the, cool. Yeah, we there's, accepted. there's the famous study where they had people come in and give electroshocks. They yes. thought they're giving electroshocks yeah. to someone who's screaming and, and there's a doctor saying, Okay, give them more, give them more. Right. And the person's screaming and begging. Mm-hmm. And the people continue to say, Are you sure I should give them more? Yeah, it's part of the test. You have to yeah. do it. And they would do it. Mm-hmm. And, they, and of course, there aren't really electric shocks going on. It's fake no, no, right. Because the test is to see what people do. And interestingly enough, the people that said no were female nurses. That's who said no. Of course. I'm not doing that. Of but the men were the most likely mm-hmm. to go, Okay, if you say so. We're more violent as a, as a gender, as a species. Well, and easily warped by what the, the, the yes. establishment says is okay. Yeah. Which is a big thing to think about. And you see it very much at the beginning of the, the movie. And you get to see right from the beginning these great actors mm-hmm. and these characters. So let's, let's go through them a little sure. bit. Sure. Uh, so let's start with the person with the biggest opinion when we come in is Lee J. Cobb. Right.
3: The white John Roca, Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're going to have to explain that a little bit. How is Lee J. Cobb the white John Roca? He's my basic body type. Uh, a <laughs> big guy. With, uh, yes. So he's a big guy. When I'm uh, a fervent or angry about something, I can be as obstinate and stubborn as he is. Yeah. I, I, in my younger years, I could have been as vitriolic as he is in this movie. And so for me, I always feel sympathy for Lee J. Cobb because of... The thing with his son, which they introduce kind of early in the film to give you the lay the groundwork that this is going to pay off later in the film. And no matter how many times I've seen this movie, Lee J. Cobb is one of my favorite underrated actors that doesn't yeah. get enough love. Fantastic All on the waterfront. So many, so many films he's great in, and people don't give him enough love. And that's why I love this movie so much because it gives him the shot. Like John Polito in Miller's Crossing, you find these character actors, you give them the right role that but, shows you, yeah, they do character work to pay the bills, but they're really actually damn good as an actor, and Lee J. Cobb is fantastic. Well, he's great, and
0: he's called upon to do a not-so-fun thing, Absolutely. Absolutely. which is he plays a, a, a guy who is uh, angry yes. and just unreasonable and mm-hmm. wants this guy dead for reasons that are not rational.
1: What are you talking about? I mean, we're all going crazy in here or something. The kid is guilty. Why don't you listen to the facts?
3: It's his own broken soul over but, what happened with his son. But what he does... What he does, and what's
0: good acting, mm-hmm. is you got to do it. You mm-hmm. can't apologize right. for the character that you're playing. You can't know, oh, I'm playing the bad guy. Yeah. I'm playing a jerk. If you mm-hmm. do that, you're doomed. Right. You're playing the guy who's right, the mm-hmm. guy who's the only sensible, clear-thinking person in the room, mm-hmm. and he passionately and strongly and irrationally fights
3: that fight through the whole movie absolutely and if he's not good the movie falls right all the best actors say this in interviews who play villains you have to believe that the villain is has a reason for why they're doing what they're doing you have to believe in the reason that lets you play it not as a villain but as a person who just believes this and is following what they think is the right way to think right absolutely
0: right um uh e.g marshall oh so good yeah. He to me is the opposite side of, of Lee J. Cobb. Right. Yes. Which is E. G. Marshall is the second hardest person to convince.
3: Yes. For different um, reasons.
0: And he is a stockbroker, businessman, mm-hmm. obviously well educated. He wears glasses. He speaks softly. He's very articulate. He doesn't sweat. He doesn't sweat, <laughs> apparently. And he's the the bit the best match for yeah. Henry Fonda mm-hmm. in the movie. And he but he is a hundred percent logical. Yeah. And when the
3: preponderance of evidence goes to the other side, he goes i'm wrong i'm convinced not guilty yes and he's the last domino to fall before yep. lee j cobb yep. because that's the last wall which yeah. is always the hardest wall
0: so in a way he's the opposite of lee j cobb because lee j cobb is all emotion yes and he is responding to it emotionally e.g Marshall is all logic yeah and, mm-hmm. and and when his own logic is thrown back to him he goes ah okay
3: yeah and accept it yeah great great character mm-hmm. um Jack Klugman. I love Jack Klugman. He really is. So He's so great. He's so fun. You know, the part was originally written for a 21-year-old who was supposed to be the same race as the, Makes sense. Uh, as the defendant. So when they cast Jack Klugman, he was 35 years old and a white guy. Mm. And he, he went to Sidney Levitt and said, I don't think I'm the right person for this. And Sidney said, trust me, for what I'm doing, it'll work and and damn it, it if does. it doesn't it does yeah.
0: well and and because Jack Klugman has such chops yes he's one of those great working actors who's never not good mm-hmm. if you like i highly recommend if you like the twilight zone which i love oh, yeah. there's like two or three episodes yeah. where Jack Klugman shows up and he's so good mm-hmm. he's such a good actor and and he gives such vulnerability and he's this character Who, because his backstory is just what you say. He came from the streets in some way and he's insecure about that and he's with these people that are, you know, uh, that he feels being judged by Mm -hmm. it and you see him push back and you see him fight and you see him kind of get the
3: strength to stand up for himself. And he doesn't change his mind and he doesn't waffle and he fights back to anyone who tries to confront him or, and not in a negative way, he fights back by standing his ground. He doesn't fight back to attack.
1: Oh, now just wait a minute. Listen, you can't talk to me like that. No, who do you think you are?
3: And that's what's so good about it. And Steve, that's a great way to describe him because he is that guy who feels a little bit out of place in this room full of people who might be smarter than him. So he doesn't, so he he doesn't like uh, overplay his hand. Yeah. He's very clear about what he's doing. You see him kind of go with the flow yes. at first and yes. then he goes, oh, wait, wait, a, minute. Right. wait
0: a minute. You can't say that right you know and particularly when it comes at him yeah. when the race stuff and the you yeah. know you're one of them kind yeah. of comes at him and it's funny because even though visually it doesn't work at all emotionally it works
3: it does fine. and when lee J. cobb goes after him and then uh and has that conversation, when then later lee J. comes up to him was like i you know i just got a bit emotional i got a little how you know how it is i got a little hot under the collar you know trying to re-cement that right. connection because he hasn't voted not guilty yet yeah jack Klugman hasn't yeah yeah uh jack warden yeah jack warden who Bro, for people who don't know like go watch The Verdict with Paul Newman and Jack Warden. Jack Warden yeah. is fantastic in The Verdict. And he has been in numerous Another films. Another Sidney Lumet film, by in the way. You're right, exactly. And in numerous films. And he's played so many great hard characters, evil characters, good characters, fun characters, playful characters. He, yeah. The man is m- so talented all around the board. And he does a great job playing this New York guy who just wants to go see the Yankees play Cleveland. And he's got the hat on and he's got the right outfit and the rapid-fire delivery, which yeah. you know people like this.
0: Yeah. And he's just... And he's a salesman. Yes. And he's like, I care about... Self- on the point or not so let's let's get down to brass tacks right the interesting thing with him i think he might be the least moral person in this in this church
3: absolutely because when he switches to not guilty even the people who are on the not guilty side go wait a minute you're not doing it for the right reasons because he just wants to get out of there he just wants to go see the game
2: i don't know about the rest of them but i'm getting a little tired of this yakety yakking back and forth it's getting us nowhere
1: so i guess i'll have to break it up i changed my vote to not guilty you what you heard me i had enough What do you mean you've had enough? That's no answer. Hey, listen, you just uh, take care of yourself, huh? You know? He's right. That's not an answer. What kind of a man are you? You have sat here and voted guilty with everyone else because there are some baseball tickets burning a hole in your pocket. And now you have changed your vote because you say you're sick of all the talking here. Now, listen, buddy. Who tells you that you're the right to play like this with a man's life? Don't you care? Now, wait a minute. You can't talk like that to me. I can't talk like that to you. If you want to vote not guilty, then do it because you are convinced the man is not guilty, and not because you've had enough. And if you think he is guilty, then vote that way.
0: Right. Yeah, Lee J. Cobb passionately believes what yes, he believes. He does. Ed Bagley, he believes what he believes. Right, exactly. He might be a racist, right? But he he has a moral core. Mm-hmm. It's a racist moral core, right? Whereas Jack Warden has no moral core, right? He just like I just want to get out of here.
3: Yeah, is um, a bit sociopathic in that way?
0: Yeah. Um, but again, and again, you watch his mannerisms, mm. you watch his behavior, you watch him looking at the other people mm-hmm. and you see why he's, he's a salesman. Yeah. He, I'm trying to get along. I'm trying to make a deal with you to get what I want. And right. what I want
3: is to get out of here. But he combo, he combos ball busting with, uh, trying to be trying to connect with them. Oh, come on. Yeah. It's yeah. ball busting. Soft sell. It's hard yeah.
0: sell. And soft right. sell. Right. Exactly. Ball he's busting. Salesman. Absolutely. That's what he's doing. Yep. Um, Ed Begley, we already talked about a little oh, bit. So good. Yeah. And, and, and again, not a fun part to play. To play the this is they're all alike
3: guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and his anger, I would say, is worse than Lee J. Cobb's anger because Lee J. Cobb's anger is understandable. It's right. misguided. It's from a broken heart. Whereas this guy's anger is from deep within his soul. Yeah. And it's nasty. Well, and there's this
0: beautifully filmed moment where... They, we, we kind of peg him as a racist fairly early mm-hmm, in the movie, mm-hmm. but, that, but, but it's contained on a certain level. Yeah, yeah. And then when things start turning against him, when slowly but surely, one by one, people start to say not guilty, yeah. uh, Ed Begley goes off. Yes. And he goes on a racist rant and one by one, yeah, beautifully staged, so each crazy. of the jurors stand up and turn their back on him. And it's right on the edge of being too theatrical. Yes. I, you know what yes, I mean? absolutely, Steve. It's right on the edge of right. like, we're in a movie. This is a movie moment, right. but it's so good.
3: Yeah, it's earned because of everything that's come before yeah. it, performance-wise, directing-wise, and composition-wise as a film, that that's, that moment works, even though it's very much a theater moment. It works on film. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And it's powerful. Very powerful. Martin Balsam. Oh, such a fantastic actor. Loved him. In so many things, Psycho, what in numerous films, what have you? He's such. A, he's got one of these amazing, great voices yeah. that's deep within his neck and throat. Uh, but that there's an earnestness to him, but there's also a passive aggressive nature to him, which I discovered this time around when and when they come at him about being in charge of the jury and he goes, Well you do it. You want to do it, you do it.
1: Listen, just because I'm trying to keep this thing organized, I mean here you take it. You know, you take on the responsibility. I'll just, I'll just keep my mouth shut, that's all what are you getting so hot about? Calm down, will you? Well, don't tell me to calm down. Here you wanna take the chair, just take the chair, yeah, that's I'm all a seat 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 that's in the the front of me. Listen, you think it's funny or something? Hey, forget it, fella. The whole thing's unimportant. Come on. Unimportant? Oh, here, you try. No, oh, yeah, nobody wants to change. You're doing a beautiful job. Um. Yeah,
3: you're doing great. just oh. great, fella. And Martin Balsaman, one of these rare moments of a window into the, who this guy really is, says, brother, I don't care what you do. And that's right. fascinating. And you're the foreman. Right. And you're giving away your power in that moment and you're being childish. Why? Because you've been challenged as a man by other men. Right. And that's the thing that opens well, up. And you've
0: watched him through the film yep. do this really hard job it is. of managing this thing. And you see him do a really good job mm-hmm. because, it's a again, it's a weird position, yeah. which is that... You are ostensibly in charge, yeah, but you're not in charge in a way that's earned. You're right. not; these people don't really have to listen to you, yeah. And so you're. I've been through this with my friends of like, yeah. I'm the person who's kind of supposed to be getting us somewhere, but I have to do it with everyone's goodwill, right? You know what I mean? And therefore, you can't just say, "Hey, we're going to do this. You do this." He right. keeps going. So maybe we'll take another vote if that's all right with everybody. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to lead through coalition, through compromise, through. And you could see his frustration and yeah. his insecurity and all that stuff bubbling underneath, right. leading up to the moment that you're talking about. And that is just that's real.
3: Yeah, it just feels real. Exactly. When I cast the play, I cast uh, Holly Thompson, who was at the time the creator of the Tallahassee Little Theater, mm. uh, and she because she carried weight in that city she was the perfect one to choose. All these other actors that I cast underneath her to play all the different roles, I knew would follow her as the foreman on the jury. And it was, you, that was right. built in with the casting in my mind. This is a woman who already commands that respect makes with these actors already outside of this play. So if she brings that, they can fall into line perfectly, and it's not acting. It's right. just natural. was It's an unsung, most important part of this movie is Martin Balsam as yeah. the foreman because he's guiding them where they need to go. Yeah,
0: So the, I, we're not going to go through every all 12 of them. We, right. we got through a bunch. Um, there's also the advertising guy who speaks in advertising yep. speak. Yep. We have the Ital- or Eastern European immigrant yep. who – and you see one of the wonderful things I like watching him is the slow process of yep. his thinking yep. is that he's methodically thinking through the problem. Yep. And once he comes to a certain place, he goes, oh. I've gone to the other
3: side Right because he's a watchmaker So to him it's parts Yeah exactly Oh great point Parts put together To lead into a a creation And what's great about him Is that he does He is the one representative In that room Who is not necessarily white Yeah Right and so His accent And I love how he corrects The grammar on juror number 10 And by the way We should say that There are no names In this movie Everyone is juror number whatever They never say their names To each other Even when Lee J. Cobb Hands his uh, card To uh, E.G. Marshall He never says My name is blah 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 He says just the name of his of his uh, delivery service right and that's that whole thing it keeps it still universal because there are no names that's a great that's a great point um we also
0: have the the old man yeah uh who oh so heartbreaking yeah who has this kind of wisdom and Mm -hmm. slow way of speech and at the beginning i think everyone's trying to with the exception of juror number eight Mm -hmm. is trying to please each other yes and we're trying to get along and we're gonna we all agree he's guilty and he's guilty and that's going to be it right as we go along, we start to see what, what I think juror number eight, Henry Fonda's character does, is say, this is a boy's life. Mm-hmm. This is serious. Even if he's guilty. Yeah. Even if we all agree he's guilty. It deserves us taking the time and really thinking about it. We owe him a few words. We owe him a few words. Mm-hmm. And, and the old man is really, I think, the first one who really does that. Yeah, so he's the you're... first
3: one that votes not guilty. And again, you get into this politics of group dynamics. You're right. Um, <laughs> this guy's trying to bully them into voting right. guilty, whereas Henry Fawn is trying to approach it from a logical place. Right.
0: By the way, have you yeah. ever served on a jury?
3: Yes, twice.
0: Um, and they say... Basically, don't be 12 angry men. Mm-hmm. Your job is not to investigate the crime. Right. And yet that is, in fact, exactly what they do. They what? reinvestigate the crime.
3: And it has to because it's a film that has to do that. It's how of you course. It's keep the audience. And
0: so they call for evidence. They go over material. They figure out yeah. that that the, the old man who witnessed the murder, not the old man in our movie, he, yeah. he couldn't have got walked from here to there in the time he said. Right. That the woman who saw it through the train couldn't have turned over and she must have worn glasses. Yeah. And the old man was hiding his injury and the knife that they, the, the prosecution said there was unusual, could never find it. Well, Henry Fonda find, found a knife exactly right like mm-hmm. it. And we go through the logic of this
3: mystery. This is the cheat of the movie. That at the end of the movie... You don't believe, you don't know if Henry Fonda was right all along or not. Whether you or not he's don't, guilty. Whether he's guilty or that not. That was what I was going to ask you. Yeah, that's what's so great about the movie. Henry Fonda could possibly be absolutely wrong about this, and the kid killed his father, and he's letting murder walk free. Well, first of all, I 100% agree. Yeah.
0: And, but here's the, what I think is the bigger point. Mm-hmm. The bigger point is Henry Fonda is completely right, because the... Prosecution did not prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. Correct. Very because, good point, Steve. Because this, when you said this is a movie about America, I, I totally agree mm-hmm. because not only is it about these, uh, these are American people, this is a, a cross-section of America struggling with American things, yeah. but we exist within this legal system. Yeah. And the legal system is that we believe that people are innocent until proven guilty. And that's difficult. Mm-hmm. What that means is that guilty people are going to go free. Right. and we would rather have guilty people go free than innocent people go to jail mm-hmm. that is an essential american value and that essential american value is not easy mm-hmm. it hurts
3: some values hurt because that's why they're worth it exactly and because real people are affected by these values real family members real loved ones are affected by this system we have in place
0: well if you look at the uh, the innocence project and Mm -hmm. you know DNA evidence and all these things that are happening we're seeing all across the country all these innocent people being let free who served 10 20 30 40 years in prison for things
3: they didn't do which speaks to the human condition and its ability to endure its situation adapt to it and get along with it or overcome it. And that's what's so f- f- amazing every time they let one of these people out who has not killed themselves in prison yeah. because they're looking at 40 years for a crime they didn't get, which would dem- which would which I would co- which I would push imagine. the limits of most people oh, yeah. to accept the situation. They've done it and been, and when they walk out there is such a joy on their faces that they're finally free but I bet they never get a really fully peaceful night of sleep. Right. Because you're always afraid there's going to be some other evidence that comes up that sends you right back into that
0: hole. I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah. And this, we go back to the moment of Henry Fonda because without juror number eight, that guy's decided guilty within 10 minutes. Oh yeah, absolutely. He's guilty. And Henry Fonda says, I don't know. It deserves a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That moment is to protect that guy 40 years down yeah. the line, convicted for the thing he didn't commit. Right. Is that that responsibility, you, you know, that American citizenship mm-hmm. is responsibility.
3: Yes, at times it's almost irrelevant that they're talking about a case. What they're really talking about is racism in this country. It's an underlying current through the whole film. Absolutely, you know, and because of some of the comments that people racism
0: make. and the preconceived notions about class, yeah, and the and preconceived about culture and about culture, yeah. and about looking at you know, like because the, they describe him, oh, this kid was a bad kid. Yeah. You know, he'd been in trouble. Right, he'd been right, in fights. Right, and Henry Fonda's response is like, well, he didn't have a mother and he didn't have a home. Yes. He grew up in a place where there are fights all the time. But it's very mm-hmm. hard for him not to be in fights. And then what do we take with the information? Because we see this all the time, particularly today when we have uh, issues of crime and descriptions of people's history as predictors of the future. And that's really difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, and like to me, the thing, the lesson of this, I mean, there are a lot of lessons of this, (laughs) of this (laughs) film. But one of the lessons is before you judge someone else, you got to judge yourself. Right. You know, don't What's the quote? It's before you take this something out of someone else's eye. Take
3: oh, the, before the, you judge the speck in in your so, brother's eye, look at the log in your own eye. Yeah, that's it. Thank yeah. you. I knew you would get that. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, being Catholic, yeah, yeah. The Jews, Jews don't have that
0: quote. <laughs> no, you guys have the Old Testament. Which that's just, what you yeah. yeah. Um, so, but but I love the quote. I mean, I think that's and this that's what this is that the first thing hmm? these jurors have to do is take the blinders off. Yeah, which
3: is once again the battle that we have in this country between people who want to convict someone just because they're a color or they come from a bad background or they come from a race or they come from a country that has this kind of stuff in it versus people who want to be no let's try to understand what happened here let's try to look at what this kid might have been going through what he might be and remember he's still a kid processing right and wrong right he doesn't understand and we don't know what the dad did you know so it's just there's so much here that is you you get to see both sides of this country right here in this play and it still resonates almost 60 years
0: later I want to go back because I think we have to keep hitting yeah. this original point, which he might have done it. He might have done it. Yes. In fact, there's a good chance he did it. Yes. What the film does is disprove or bring doubt, bring onto, doubt. onto the prosecution. Right. What it doesn't do, it doesn't, you know, I mean, like, for instance, and I won't say my, well, my opinion's going to be somewhat clear. Please go ahead. Uh, is uh, in the OJ trial. That's what they did. Yeah. They brought doubt onto the prosecution's case. Yep. They didn't show
3: that anybody else could have killed him. Right. And I think after watching that FX show and watching the uh, t- uh, 10 part or 7 part right. ESPN documentary on it, there's no way you don't think he did it. There's no way. There's just no way. You have it's, to really do it, mental gymnastics. It, it seems almost po- impossible yeah. to think he didn't do it. And so that's a case
0: of, that is the system, mm-hmm. is that if the defense can create enough doubt, then mm-hmm. that person
3: will go free. And that's what happens in this film. Right. And absolutely, that that is uh, a balancing thing because uh, of so many times black jurors have been convicted who were not guilty on uh, circumstantial evidence or, b- or evidence right. isn't valid just put them in jail so there was a balance in the other in the other direction with this case and not it's not valid it's not good it's not correct but it seemed like that's what happened.
0: Well and this is why we have to fight for the system to be better. Yes. Is that the, the ideals of the system are great. Right. And that but the practicality of the system, because of right. overworked courtrooms and jurors with bias, yeah. and uh, defense attorneys who with no resources and yeah. and
3: uh, economic you know, stressors
0: and that economic these stressors, jurors have to go back and
3: work right. to pay their bills. Yeah.
0: And, and th- that these things just don't work out yeah. fair. And yeah. so we you know, when you look at the uh, sentences given to African Americans and people of color, right. and that they're disproportionately long sentences and all these mm-hmm. things. Well, it goes back to things we see in 12 Angry Men. Right. You know, is that the, those biases that people bring into the courthouse, mm-hmm. they exist. And yeah. maybe it means a year or longer, it means a couple years longer. Right. Maybe the person was really guilty to begin with, yeah. but that's why we have to keep working on it. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about the film to me is that yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a puzzle is it that is a it's, it's a closed door mystery mm-hmm. even though the even though we never meet the criminal we never on the we're never out a detective right
3: we're in this room trying to solve a mystery and just real intelligence yeah. on how they approach that puzzle well that's a, and that's the thing what's interesting about the film because of these uh people that they've chosen to be in the film these characters these actors and the well really these characters they bring a certain level of intelligence to this conversation to the deconstruction of the facts to the to the reinvestigating of the crime as you stated earlier we are looking at these people who are capable of doing it and their logic is understandable relatable and their logic sometimes against it is also something you've seen before and can and can uh, digest not not just intelligence yeah although that's certainly there but experience yes 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 is that
0: they each of these individuals brings different things mm-hmm. It's not that Henry Fonda came in and solved the case. No, right. It's that he has doubts, but it's the old man who had observed the old man who's the witness. That's such a great moment. And goes, did you look at him?
3: Did you see the tear in his under his jacket? Yeah. Like, why would someone wear something like that to court? Yeah. yeah. And did you see the way he walked? Yeah. And did you see the... Uh, and, and what he's doing
0: is he's saying, look, I'm an old man. Mm-hmm. and obviously a very observant old man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm an old man and I'm seeing things that you don't see. Yeah. And so if he's not on the jury bringing his piece of information, they don't deconstruct the old man's testimony. Right. Like the, the old man's lonely. Mm-hmm. He hasn't had someone listen to him in a long time. Right. He wants people. He wants to believe that he's important. Right. You know, that analysis of the character uh,
3: from, and we only get that because we have our old man on the jury, right? But once again, it's circumstantial who knows if anything he said about that old no, man absolutely. is true. And that's, yeah. what's great about this. I, I, yeah. I don't mean to keep saying whether it's great. but that's what I enjoy about the film so much yeah. is that, is that every one of these, uh, reasons that these, that they come up with here with their intelligence because of their relatability to what's happening or to the juror, to the witnesses, is all circumstantial. It's all circumstantial. Yeah, they they just—it's it, all made up. Exactly. Yeah. It's your—it's your—it's your choice to believe it or not believe it.
0: Well, or, or or there's the moment where they're going. They're talking about the angle of the knife. Yes. when it goes in. Oh, yeah. And, and Lee J. Cobb. Maybe this one's a little too far for me too. Right. But Lee J Cobb takes the knife and he holds it in an overhand grip, mm-hmm. and he says, "I need someone to sh- d- to demonstrate with." Right. There is Henry Fonda. <laughs> of course. And they've had a, a argument, and there's yeah. this long pause where Lee J Cobb like looks at the knife and looks mm-hmm. at Fonda and looks at the knife, and then he raises the knife like he's going to stab him, right. and everyone goes. <gasps> And Lee Cobb goes, no, no, we're all good here. And I'm like, all right, that, they dragged that out a little too <laughs> they, long Well, me. it's the 1950s. It's a little too long, yeah. but anyway. But I like Han- Fonda's stance that he's not scared. Yeah, absolutely. He stands there with. And, and Lee Jacob is standing as a short man, which the killer is mm-hmm. a short person, mm-hmm. and he's holding the knife over his head, and that creates the downward angle of the of, the, of right. The wound. Right, right. And then Jack Klugman, who grew up on the street, says... You don't use that kind of knife that way. Right, you go underhand. You go underhand because right. this is a switchblade, which they call a switch knife, which always sounds kind of <laughs> strange to me. But he says you got to go underhand because you would never use – because to do an overhand grip with a switchblade, yeah. you'd have to switch grips. And this is all a knife about speed. So right. anyone who grew up on the street like I did would know that. So, again, like the old man, Jack Clubman
3: brings his experience. Yeah without him we don't unlock that piece of the mystery exactly and what's so great about that moment is it's been built up because uh fonda has been slowly turning cobb's points on each other he was an old man he wasn't sure about what he was gonna say he wasn't sure about half the stuff he was gonna say boom close up on lee J. cobb's face uh digesting the words he's just said that basically undercut his argument for the old man
1: what's the matter with you guys you all know he's guilty he's got to burn you're letting him slip through our fingers Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? I'm one of them. Perhaps you'd like to pull the switch. Well, this kid, you bet I would. I feel sorry for you. What it must feel like to want to pull the switch? Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. <laughs> Let me go. I'll kill him, i kill him. You don't really mean you'll kill me, do you?
0: you
3: don't really mean you're going to kill me, do you? Right. And that's boo.
0: And so we've established earlier that mm -hmm. the kid said, I'm going to kill you to his father. And Lee J. Cobb said, no one says I'm going to kill you unless they mean it. That's
3: what I'm saying. That's what's so great. So that when that moment happens with the knife, it's, I think it's the first time that we get a small glimpse into Henry Fonda, Henry Fonda's character, not juror number eight, understanding juror number three, understanding his anger, understanding where that's coming from, because he doesn't react to him doing the knife into his chest because he he understands that he has the power here not juror number three in that moment like he understands that this man is a broken man
0: and this is good storytelling mm-hmm. is that it's, it's good the way you're using the camera. Yeah. What you're focusing on is, is I, I know we said this in other podcasts but a lot of acting is reacting yeah. and a lot of directing is reaction shots. Mm-hmm. It's not the thing that Henry Fonda says. It's watching E.G. Marshall react to the thing that yeah. Henry Fonda says. Yeah. Or watch because you see the moments that they start to turn. You see them see
3: the knife, see the stance, hear mm-hmm. the words and go, oh yeah. I have to think about this differently. And none of them overplay it. No. When those moments happen for them, I think one of my favorite moments in the film is when Balsam and Huff Fonda are sitting at the window after the rain started, and Balsam tells that story about being oh, rained out and baseball and what have you. And there's a correlation to what's happening here. Oh, right? That's great. There was a desire that something was going to occur, but rain outside forces unexpected thing happens and stops it from happening. And this is what you see in a small way of what Fonda is doing in that jury room.
0: Well, and, and this is l- the little things that go into directing mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, Sidney Lumet by the way has a fantastic book called Making Movies Yep, and this is my favorite book on directing I think like it is it is the most straightforward the most practical mm-hmm. and his philosophy of directing is very much how I would want to be as a director or have yeah. tried to be and one of the things he talks about is just those little decisions you make in terms of for instance starting with the high angle wide end yeah. lenses and ending up with the lower angle long lenses well another one is weather yeah what's the weather yeah and they go when they get into that uh, place It's hot. Yeah, You know, you get the choice. Should it be cold? Should it be nothing? Yeah. Should it be room temperature? Or should it be hot? Mm-hmm. Well, hot's better. Yeah. You know, and then as the sun starts to go down, and then it starts pouring rain, and then they, the fan wouldn't work at the beginning, mm-hmm. because the, the fan was connected to the light switch, didn't work until right. they turned the light switch on, now the fan's suddenly going. That just, does it add a ton to the movie? No.
3: Does it add a little to the movie? That's per- that's really good. Yes. Well, you feel the claustrophobia, right? They're in this room. It's hot. It's in New York. You would imagine right. this in New York. It's in baseball starts in April, right. so it's probably in the middle of June or July in the hottest month. Yeah. And then you have these rainstorms. And people who've lived big on these Coast. Big summer rainstorms. Big summer court. rainstorms are the worst because it's like having a wet blanket thrown on, a wet, warm blanket thrown on your entire body. And it's, and it's better so than the humidity.
0: I'd rather, like, when that <laughs> rain comes, I'll go out and go, oh, thank God.
3: At least something changed. But either way, you have this feeling that they're oh, yeah. in a hot box. They're in a sweat box Absolutely. being pushed to the limit, you know? Except for E.G. Marshall, who does no, not sweat. Until that one moment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, so there's something that I don't like about the movie Ooh, let's do it well and, and really what I just say is you know as we said before you judge movies for their time yeah absolutely and something that happened a lot particularly in the 50s was the we are going to get to the mystery and there's going to be a thing that explains it mm-hmm. uh, the little and, and, and it's particularly at the rise of psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. and the rise of, Oh, you do this because your father beat you up. Right. Now that we know this, we've solved the problem. Right. Is that Lee Jacob's explanation for why he's doing what he's doing. It's just always been a little too pat for me. Okay. You know, can you explain, can you elaborate? Well, you know, the the basic setup is he had some conflict with his son. Right. And which lays unresolved. Mm -hmm. And so he is acting out against this Mm -hmm. kid and it, because of his unresolved conflict with his son. Right. It's, everyone else's it's a little personal and a little like i don't know i've never loved it i love lee j cobb i love the yeah i i I love the i'm not i'm not bad mouth in the movie Mm -hmm. it's just always i'm doing this because of this it's too much of a one-to-one wow relationship for
3: them i've always loved it because it allows him to not be a full villain and allows you to have sympathy yeah. for him by the end of the movie because the way the Cobb is Cobb is so determined to play it that way, so determined to be to be right in this moment for his own reasons. That when the I'm sorry. When that moment happens and he rips the picture of his son, which always makes me cry. Yeah. There's such a power in that because I know that anger. i I've, I've had that anger personally in my life in my younger years. So when he has that moment, I feel such a powerful sympathy for him that I accept his reasonings for why he's doing what he's doing. He's working something out because he's not an intelligent man, an emotionally intelligent man. He has to hit everything with a hammer to understand it, to get through it. And this is one thing he can't. And it's destroying him because he loves his son so much, but he's unable to express love to him in a way that his son understands. So when he's broken, in that when he walks in that jury room and the fight, everything he could have just he, he could have had a physical fight with his son, and his son has moved out, his son has left him, his son has disowned him. This is what he's carrying into the room. Right? Well, I can bring that to the movie myself, which is why I accept it. And when he has that moment when he rips the picture and the the pain with which he tries to reassemble the the ripped portions of the picture is so devastatingly powerful that I just uh, feel nothing but uh, an affinity for this storyline, an affinity for this, uh, uh, what you say, the one-to-one. I don't have a problem with it because I understand it. I've known men like this. I've been a man like this. So I know this, you know. You know, you know what? You're right. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm no, not trying to be right. No, I, it's just, I'm thinking it's my about own it. point of view. Well, because you
0: know? I mean, this is, and again, it's why I think this is good. You and I doing the show together mm-hmm. is I'm always going to sit back intellectually a little bit, and so me as the playwright, Absolutely. you know, as the as the person thinking, like that would be a technique that I wouldn't want to use, right? You know, and but you expressing how you felt, I'm like, yeah, if you if you felt that, you're right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the other thing about it uh, is that we get this amazing remarkable moment at the end mm-hmm. where Henry Fonda
3: helps him on with his jacket. Yes. What, what what do you think's happening there? It's it's the reason that Henry Fonda defends the kid is the reason that Henry Fonda puts the jacket on Lee J. Cobb. He understands People and does not see them as good or evil. He looks for the reasonings and the reason why they are the way they are. And he's compassionate. And he's compassionate. And the only reason, the only people that can find the reasons why people do do are compassionate people because they want to understand and not vilify people they want to understand them so they can see why they did what they did what motivates them to do the things that they're doing that's important and i think that's why he and that's why it's such a great moment when he puts the jacket on him he's not saying i'm judging you you're evil you deserve to be banished he's saying i understand man to man my heart breaks for you i have three kids i understand and that's such a powerful moment he's he's putting his he's putting uh A soldier's armor back on him is what he's doing in that jacket.
0: And and, and giving him some some love. The kind kind of
3: love that he could expect.
0: If he he put his armor on the guy, he'd get punched in the face. No, But just giving him that jacket is a little bit of, I acknowledge you. And it's not that Henry Fonda likes Lee J. Cobb. No, not necessarily. Right. Yeah. It's just that he gives him compassion and acknowledgement as a human being. Right. Which we all could use more of in this world. Right. Even to the person who's not. Who's the one of the two really
3: not good guys in this room? Right, and, you know, but he's only temporarily not good. Right. Whereas I think juror number ten is absolutely not good yeah. for the life. Yeah, he's a he's a racist. That's a bitter, frustrated old man that's going to die like Corleone, right. di- like Michael does at the end of Godfather Three. He's going to die sitting alone in some fuck some but chair, but not not
0: not nearly as scenically. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's just going to be like an old
3: folks home or something. Right, right.
0: Um, (laughs) One more, just a a minor thing. It goes to, again, these small decisions. Mm -hmm. Henry Fonda's wearing a white suit. Yes. True. Yes. You know, that's and, a 19. I think that I, I always chalk it up to 1950s, but please. Well, and it's not just that he, it's not just that he's a good guy. Yeah. It's that everybody else is wearing complicated things. They're mm-hmm. wearing a jacket, you know, and the the costuming is really good. It's, it's very smart. It's, yeah. And that kind of white linen summer suit that he's wearing separates him in this way and makes him other. Yes. He is not of these guys. Mm-mm. These guys are more, you know, Henry Fonda's clearly with the exception of EG Marshall, better educated. He's, he lives a very, very different life. Yeah. You know, and just, you know, you make small decisions, but that white suit is really
3: important. I think, do we ever find out what his job is? He's I an feel architect, like we, architect. See, and that's the thing, right? His yeah. job is to design things. His job yeah. is to, uh, put things together in a certain way that works. Yeah. Right. And so he's able to be distant, to be above, to be aloof because for him, it's about designing structure. It's not about, uh, Working with human beings all the time.
0: So uh, normally I'd ask you for your final thoughts. I want to give my final thoughts
3: first. Um, uh, is <laughs> I love this. Yes, go ahead. Well, because this is no, your, no, I, I no, Because a... you started the the show saying the same thing. Like normally we ask you, John, yeah. what are you but I want it. So I like it. It's totally uniform. Yeah. So I was thinking about like why do we why do we
0: care about this movie? Why? And obviously we've said passionately about mm-hmm. why we care about in terms of the legal system, in yeah. terms of America, and all that. I also think. This is so different from the kinds of movies we see today. Yes. Is that the movies, the vast majority of the movies we see today, particularly the studio movies, are concerned with very big things. Yes. It's not just one person's life in jeopardy. It's the world is in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And the characters are big. And the actions are big. And I don't have any problem with that kind of movie. I like going to see that kind of movie. Yeah. But there's something that you get when you decide to examine something that's very small. Yeah. There's something that you get in intimacy that you can't get in grandiosity. Right. you know. Right. And there's something here in this film of we're going to look at one action, this murder. We're going to look at these 12 people mm-hmm. and we're going to see their humanness and how they behave. Mm-hmm. And there's something that you get here that you can't get with the movies that are being made today. Right. And I think that's really sad. Well, the main studio movies. The main studio yeah, movies. Right. Well, and the interesting thing is that the independent films tend to be uh, very dark very different yes. very avant-garde very intense very much alternate programming. alternate for yeah whereas this is mainstream yeah and that what we don't get is the small mainstream intimate story we get it more in television yeah much more in television yes. than we do in film. Yeah. And it's like, this is something we really need. because, mm-hmm. Particularly today when we're facing big things in the world, yeah. big, serious social issues, and we don't solve those social issues by watching Thor save the planet. <laughs> you know, it's not that I don't want to watch that. Very good point. I like Captain America. Mm-hmm. I, like the, I like Star Wars. I like those things. Right. But watching what happens in a courtroom... That's things we need to be looking at, watching how Mm -hmm. people behave, watching our legal system, watching the peer pressure of politics and conflict within our society. we got to do that in a real way, not in a grandiose way, in a real human, natural way. And that's why we need movies like this. Absolutely,
3: Stephen. I totally 100% agree with you. I think for me, I'm okay with it for now. There are enough independent films that keep me satisfied for the exploration of the human condition. A Lobster being one of them, uh, which I saw a few weeks ago. But uh, when those films, the Supermans, the Thors, the new versions of them, rather win Oscars then I'll weep for the film community until then I hold out hope that the trend changes Uh, John Campy who's one of the guys at Collider who uh, is at Comic Con HQ and Film HQ he said like it was so funny that 10 years ago I was convincing trying to convince people to go to comic book movies and now I'm trying to convince people to go to regular movies and that's the truth it's, it's changed. When I was a geeky kid, I, 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 this was my
0: fantasy. Oh, yeah, sure. Someday people will understand how great you know, Daredevil is or whatever, yeah, you know, all these yeah. things. And, and I'm the same thing. I'm sort yeah. of going, look, yeah, it is great. But hey, what happened to that other stuff? Right. What happened to Amadeus? And right. what happened to... Those movies don't exist anymore. Where are those epics? Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and if they do get lost. Then- epics and intimate films and just mm-hmm. the whole range and comedies and romances and the whole range right. of filmmaking. It's like
3: getting knocked out right well that's what epics do really well grandiose but with uh, lim- what did you say min- min- limited what, did, what were you I saying I have no idea intimate, intimate moments because well, okay. right? Arabia has that oh, in spades yeah. right the best epics have that in spades okay my, my final thoughts is at what I, I agree a thousand percent with what Steve said but I also think what's so great about this movie is this is the time in the 50s and 60s where we did these kind of courtroom dramas we were interested in exploring uh, these cases and the, the, our jury system our legal system it was an exposition of our legal system as not being 100% infallible, correct, untouchable. And so we saw Witness for the Prosecution, which is a fantastic film. You see this film, Anatomy of a Murder. You see these things that explore Even Runaway Jury recently, a few years ago, with uh, mm. uh, Gene Hackman and Pacino and uh, Rachel Weiss and John Cusack. You see that exploration of these issues, of these topics. And, and what you have here, when you break it on down, uh, is a case for America discussing race relations and race issues in a courtroom over a case about a boy killing his father committing patricide possibly and that's something why would he commit patricide what does it mean to commit patricide and how much of their own father instincts their own instincts as men and as fathers and as sons bleed into why they are the way they are in this uh jury room and for me it's a just a beautiful fantastic character study of men and if you're a man and you haven't seen this movie do yourself a favor thanks for listening but right. do yourself a favor yeah. rent it watch it see it explore it give us your comments because i'm telling you you will get something really powerful out of it it's something you hadn't thought about before
0: and you might even see yourself yes a little bit absolutely and maybe you won't see yourself maybe you just go oh, i'm henry fonda mm-hmm. but maybe you'll see something else most of us most
3: people believe they're henry fonda when they're not you yeah. will see something else.
0: Well, you might have a little bit of Henry Fonda, sure, but maybe you were a little insecure about expressing your opinion like Jack Klugman. Yeah. Or maybe you needed time to process through things like the Eastern European guy. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're trying to manage the group and getting frustrated
3: like Barton Balsam. Yeah, or yeah. you're maybe juror number six who constantly defends the old man, defends Klugman like he doesn't want anybody right. saying anything untowards each other. He wants yeah. to maintain a level of civility and respect. Yeah. And yeah. maybe you're just a horrible racist. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, And if you are, please stop being so. (laughs) Yes.
0: And on that note, uh, we would love to hear your comments, but not your racist ones. Yes, please. Uh, You can visit us on Facebook. We're at the cinephiles. That's the C-I-N-E dash. F I L E S. Yeah. We definitely could use your uh, reviews on iTunes. They they really, really help. And if you would like to reach me, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris.
3: Uh, John, where can they reach you? Uh, you guys can always reach me at The Roca Says, R O C H A, on Twitter and on Instagram. I do respond as much as I can to anybody who comments uh, or, and, and sends me stuff. My voiceover animation podcast, that some of you knew about, Cast of Characters, that I did with Yuri Lowenthal, is getting fast tracked. At uh, Geek and Sundry on their Twitch channel. Uh, The potential name of it at this point is Super Animation Game Time. And we will be interviewing uh, people who are uh, successful in voiceover animation, whether they're a voice, whether they're a creator, a writer, a producer, um, uh, a director. Any number or a technician, a board operator, like we, we, we interview everybody involved with animation and video games and voiceover and talk to them about their lives and who they are as people. And if we get to their work, we get to their work, but it's more of an interview with these people talking about their lives and what led them to do what they do and what, what makes them tick. Oh well, that's great. Give me give me the name again. Oh yeah, Super Animation Game Time. And, uh, Super Animation Game Time. Yeah. And we're gonna release it on the uh yeah, like I said, on the Geek and Sundry Twitch channel. I just don't stop. That's no. basically what I'm trying to tell you. You just talk and talk and <laughs> I talk really and do. Talk. I Somebody needs to give me a radio show and pay me for it. I would I know, absolutely right? do it every day. Three uh, hours a day. Yeah. We have you John Rocha on Morning Drive Time. <laughs>
0: Welcome to the Roca
3: house. Welcome.
0: <laughs> All right. And on that note, uh, that is it for this time. And we will see you next time on the Cinephiles.